Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Whoever has the nod in 2024, it's like, just be somewhat honorable and also like cognitively there. Those are my two, those are my, that's my bar. Be, be okay, like, don't, don't be Trump or Biden. I didn't say it, but you definitely said it. I mean, I'll say it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I agree. Don't be Trump or Biden. And I think that that falls in line with like most, how most of the country feels too. I think so too. I think a lot of people are just not on that train. We don't want to have yeah. to do that election again. Let's do something different. Yeah. I don't think it'll be Biden. I think it will be Trump, but I don't think it'll be Biden. I don't think, see, and I kind of disagree. I'm, I'm on the opposite. I oh, think really? it might be Biden and not be Trump. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason why I think it could be Trump and not Biden is because I've seen some Democrats ask hey, would you support Biden if he ran again? And their answer is very much like, well, I'll support whoever the candidate is. And, you know, we just want a good leader up there. So it's like, they're not they're not saying no, but they're also not jumping to say yes versus like, for Trump, you still do get that defense of him, even though he hasn't been in office in two years. Yeah, I don't think that means that it won't be, uh, or that it would be Trump though, because I think that, People still don't really want to cross him, but if he really falls off the deep end, especially with these pros- potential prosecutions and mm-hmm. whatever happens with the January 6th committee, I think that he could become unpopular. And I think that Ron DeSantis is just ripe to step in, mm-hmm. you know, I, and it's still going to be, there's some, not, I, he's a different person than Trump, but there's a lot of overlap in yeah. policies and the way he talks and how he comes after the left. So if you're trading Trump for DeSantis, you're not making a huge trade-off. And so I think it's sort of a natural step. And I so I think it's likely that it will be one of them, but I think it's more likely it'll be DeSantis. Mm-hmm. With Biden, agreed, I don't think that uh, the leadership, the Democratic leadership is necessarily like jumping on board for him. But at the same time, he just doesn't seem to want to take the step back. And if he doesn't, then people will eventually get on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then it's like, are you, is, about. is the party going to cut against itself and not renominate him, you know, as an and incumbent? And they're just not. Yeah. 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 They're not going to do that. So yeah. he really has to be the one to say he's not going to run. And I mean, like right now, it makes sense to me why he's not saying that right now. But at he's the not same even time, halfway through. Yeah. Yeah. And but he also hasn't even like flagged at all that he might not be thinking about it. Mm hmm. Hello, Reframers. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name's Cassie, and I am one of your three hosts, joined today, as always, with the beautiful Erin and the beautiful Zachary. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're good. I'm good. Good. It's a nice, sunny day. (laughs) Nice to be here, indeed. Awesome. Another beautiful day of living in a two-story house, which magically has air upstairs and downstairs, but sometimes doesn't run air upstairs, where we're currently sitting in 90-degree heat. So very fun, very warm. These poor kids are melting. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm out here like, I was in pants because it was cold this morning. Don't worry about me. Okay. 
What are we talking about today? You might be wondering, or maybe you're a smarty pants and you looked at the title of your podcast. Today, we are talking about police, policing in America, law enforcement, police reform. We're going to kind of try to cover the top to bottom what the historical context is for law enforcement in America from our founding to now, a general overview from both sides, pros and cons of having a strong police force and presence in the community. We're going to talk about how the crime rate has been impacted in cities where they've decreased funds to the police versus ones where they it remains the same. And then we're going to try to talk about any programs or changes that might actually help with keeping communities safe, but keeping communities safe both with the police and from the police. Um, and that might be in police academies and training. And we might talk a little bit about unions, which you've already talked about unions recently, but this will be us diving in even deeper. So this, my shout out goes to Amanda this week. Sweet Amanda is the sponsor, basically. She has been pushing for this episode for a long time. And I want to say this early, we have a lot of respect for people who choose a career where they put their lives in danger for others. And so I definitely want to say that going on record. That being said, I'm looking forward to us talking openly and honestly about what has gone sideways in our country and what might need to happen or what some people's opinions are about all of this that could bring about positive change for everybody. So if you guys are ready, I think maybe we start with our um, topic. Zach, do you want to jump in? Do you want me to get started? I can get us started and then we'll see. Obviously, there's a lot of, of history here, so we'll, we'll do our best. But from the founding, I mean, you could go back to England, really, but like, let's start with, with America. But basically, there was this concept of the night watchman and, and the constable. And so these are people that were usually like on a volunteer basis uh, who would either volunteer basis or as punishment. If you were accused of doing something wrong, you were then community service almost, so to speak, was to like guard the city at night. But this was ineffective and not scalable. So really, as society grew and evolved, that model of having somebody just kind of, you know, hang out and you know, look around at night did not really serve us very well. It was also plagued by things such as like, you know, drinking and falling asleep, which posed a lot of problems for the actual security of the town. Yeah, that's definitely what I found too. I saw one of the earliest organization of these watchmen forces um, was in Boston in 1631. And then there was also one in New York in 1647. So these go back a really long time. And the roots are in the common law system, which is what the founders based our justice system off of, which is from England. And so, you know, England had these early types of police forces also. And we kind of modeled it after that, except classic United States, very wary of having an actually established police force because of the tyranny of Britain. So it was very localized. And as Zach mentioned, usually private citizens and also paid by private citizens, not paid by the government, which is something that's obviously really different than how it works now. And yeah, they developed over time. And there's kind of different types of police too, depending on where you were in the country. I found it really interesting when I was looking at this that some of the research talked about the vigilantes on the frontier. And that's kind of funny to think about like the old westerns and stuff of people just riding around in posses to like 
get the criminals, but that actually happened. And there were these like vigilante groups and they did, I mean, they could even like hang people and stuff. They weren't legally allowed to do that. But that's kind of how some of the quote police forces worked on the frontier way back in the day. That's kind of the model that I saw it as well as that in maybe the north and the center of the country where there was more urbanization, urbanization happened faster. You had the first publicly funded police forces, right? That where the city recognized the night watch thing is not going to work. We need a, a taxpayer funded police force to keep us safe. So that was Boston in 1838 was the first publicly one. But then if you were in the South, the South policing was much different in that their primary concern was for like runaway slaves. So you would have basically a contingent of people who were there to enforce laws of, you know, the Jim Crow laws, literal Jim Crow laws to keep runaway slaves from escaping or from getting into the North into freedom. And then as Aaron mentioned, you have the old West police, which is like, there was hardly even a town. So you had a sheriff and, uh, you know, us marshals who were there. These people were oftentimes operated on the fringes of written law, you could say. And, and it was more of kind of a tit for tat kind of justice rather than a, a legal type justice. And for example, we just went to Good Springs, which is in Nevada, um, on the way to Las Vegas. And on the wall in this very, very old bar in Good Springs was a newspaper clipping talking about the self-defense killing that happened in this bar. And the reason why it was deemed self-defense is because the person who committed the, the self-defense shooting and, and murdered this person was cheated in cards. And so the town, the county, like the local law at the time said, yeah, that's that's justification for a self-defense shooting. You were dealt from the underside of the deck rather than from the top. And so you were you're justified in killing this person. No charges. Very, very different purposes and intentions for law enforcement, depending on where you lived and when. Oh, my God. <laughs> really glad that that's uh, not a thing that we do anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a universal good for sure. Oh, man. Yeah. And it's I, I think it is really interesting how it kind of breaks down based on the part of the country that you're in. And it, I did see, you know, similarly, some of the first established, like actually established police forces were in these northeastern cities. So Boston, New York had one in 1844. What I thought was interesting about the New York one I want to mention, because I think it'll filter down to some of the other things we're going to talk about, is that they didn't have a detective unit until 1857. So about 10 years later, a little more than 10 years later. And then the detective unit was just plagued with scandal and corruption. And the same thing happened in England. It also happened in Chicago and Boston. Mm -hmm. And in Chicago and Boston, they ended up having to disband their criminal investigation units because they were just so corrupt. We do have detectives now that you know, the New York, the NYPD ended up kind of reform. They did a bunch of investigations. They reformed it. But I thought that was kind of interesting how the corruption was such a big deal, even very soon after these police departments were established, that they ended up having to disband units, you know, like right at the beginning. And then I also wanted to follow up on the policing in the South. So you mentioned that a lot of the Southern policing back in the day when we had slavery was about apprehending escaped slaves. And that's absolutely true. They were called slave patrols. And they used excessive force, you know, really whatever method that they wanted in order to capture and return escaped slaves. And then also to basically to enforce slavery, to make sure that slaves were doing what they what their master said they should be doing. So, I mean, obviously, a really, really 
terrible thing, but these slave patrols, it's obviously not the policing today, but it's kind of like the history. We look at our history related to civil rights and we have to go back to slavery. And I think when you're talking about police, you also have to go back to the origin of these slave patrols and how they were operating in the South. And then as we developed as a nation, you know, the slave patrols were in existence until the end of the Civil War. And then obviously, with the passage of the 13th Amendment, we, you know, outlawed slavery. But then they were replaced by these militia style groups who were able to deny access to equal rights to freed slaves. And part of that was based on Jim Crow laws that were in existence at the time. So they were enforcing the laws at the time, but they very strongly did that. There's a lot of excessive force, a lot of violation of rights during that time. And that happened from like the 1900s through the early 1960s. And then, you know, we'll we'll probably talk about it more, but even beyond, beyond those times. So I think that history, particularly when you're talking about race relations is really important when you're looking at police. Okay, guys, thank you for the historical context. I always think that that's valuable and important so that we're not just, I think it's important to not just be talking about how we feel we collectively, not just us three. Um, how we feel about something, a topic, even a divisive one right now, but talk about how the system was intended, how it's grown and changed over time, why that might be a good thing or a bad thing, all of that. So without getting too far into this, I think it's important that we share a general overview from kind of all the sides, just to share feelings about law enforcement in the United States right now. I just want to point out too that policing is not a federally guided activity. So this is important to note that there's not really much in the in the founding documents or anything that relates directly to policing as we know it today. Like that phenomenon of having a, a city or a countywide police force is, is a relatively new concept. You know, nowadays there is something that is, you know, the federal government does do law enforcement activities. They do have, you know, border patrol agents and FBI is is domestic police force. But all of these things that that we were talking about just now in terms of the night watchmen and the slavery patrol bands in the South and, and all those things are, are local organized. They're locally organized at, at largest, you know, the county level that gets authorization, like from the state charter, not the federal government. So you see a wide variety and a, a very big disparity in terms of how policing is done across the nation and, and throughout time based off of how localities evolved. That's something just important to note that it's not like we can say, oh, America as a whole yeah. You know, here's the state. It was very dependent on the locality in which was being policed. And still is. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Zach. I think that is such an important point and it's still true, very much true today. Police is largely the province of state and local governments. You know, it's it's really not like you said there's federal enforcement officers for various federal types of crimes, but another thing is that a lot of criminal law is state specific. You know, many of the laws that, you know, tell us like who you, how you have to obey law and society. That's, that's state law. It's not um, as much federal law. Federal law will often set ceilings and floors based on, you know, like, okay, a robbery has like these elements, but you can have variations state to state. And so I think that also ties in with policing because it really is a commitment to a local control over these institutions as opposed to the federal control. And I'll ask about this later. Um, when we come to that topic, but that in particular interests me when it comes to different cries of like defund the police and things like that. Like 
who are we crying? Who are people crying that to? Like, are they asking their, their city? Are they asking their state? Are they asking the Supreme Court to say you can only do Like, you know what I mean? I think it would be interesting to kind of lay out for people, like, what calls for change like that entail. But before we get into that too much, I would like to draw our attention to sharing a general overview, kind of from all of the sides, really. Pros, cons, to having a strong police force and presence in the community. Basically, why this is a hot-button topic. Ask anyone on the street, you probably get different answers. I know it varies a lot depending on where you might live. It can really depend, and I think it's important for us to outline for those who might normally hear one side to calmly and rationally hear an argument presented from the other side. So if you guys could jump in, that would be super helpful. Thinking on policing is is evolved and, and is still evolving. I don't think, I would hope at least, that police theory is nothing that we ever settle on, right? It's, it, I think it should always be under scrutiny. There has been, I think you could classify a, a, a trend that says during the 60s and 70s, you know, maybe into the, the 80s, crime was a function of our societal failures, right? There's, you know, you think back to movies, you know, Scarface and such in, in the 80s where drug and um, mob rule, you know, literal mobs were, were having control of these things and crime was was more rampant. And I think that, that the crime rates reflect that where there was a lot of, you know, this, this sense of lurking danger in, in America's biggest cities. And then starting in, I think, the mid 80s into the, the, the 1990s, you have implementation of of what's called like broken windows policing uh, or proactive policing, which is the idea that police can be there to stop crime before it happens in a sense. What broken windows policing and why it has that term is because you're going to send police officers to areas that have broken windows, right? As a, and, and graffiti and, you know, these things, because those are signs or indications that there's a higher crime happening, higher crime rate happening in those areas than there are in areas where things are pristine and, and, and unbroken. It was first implemented really on a system, you know, citywide level in New York City and um, saw a pretty dramatic and promising drop in crime. Can I ask a question when you have a sec? Sure. Um, just to, to wrap up that thought that once implemented um, this broken windows policy, crime in New York City dropped 12% in the first year and 16% in the following year. Over the next two decades, as it was adopted more across the nation, crime would fall about 50% nationwide. That's kind of the pro side or, or the origins, you could say, of having a, a police presence that's out there, that's visible, that's trying to detect and pick up people for call it quality of life offenses, rather than waiting and being reactive to, there's a, a murder in my building, can you please come, right? It's, it's two different styles of policing. It's one is reactive and one is proactive, hence the term proactive policing. Well, first of all, I love that show. Only Murders in the Building is fantastic. You guys can watch it on Hulu. Second of all, what does that what does that mean when we say broken windows policing? Are you saying that as a policy, law enforcement was instructed to head into certain neighborhoods or parts of town and like had different quotas or expectations in those neighborhoods than in other areas? Or really, what does that mean? I don't think it has to do with quotas. I think I think we can talk about quotas more a little later, but the idea is is that there's certain offenses that we have, right? There's there's your murders, there's your robberies, there's your 
you know, kind of the big things that we think of as like violent crime. But then there's other things that are, you know, drunk in public or public urination or, you know, some of these other things that are kind of like civil nuisances, you could say. The idea was that the same person who's going to burgle or, or commit robbery, you know, next week is probably going to be the same one who's throwing a, a window, a rock through a window, you know, this week or jumping the turnstile or urinating in public. So it's it's trying to say the people that commit felonies also commit misdemeanors. And if we can catch them at the misdemeanor level and get them off the street before they have a chance to do the felonies, we'll improve the safety of, of, of our cities. And so you go where those types of activities, the misdemeanor type activities are more likely to be happening. I think this kind of feeds into where I see the debate right now, which is about racial profiling and the impact of police on people of color. And I like when I see the pros and cons of the conversation, that's where I see it. It's the pro being police departments help solve crimes and they help keep us safe and, you know, getting rid of them or cutting their budgets, anything like that is going to cause our society to not be as safe. And then on the other side, you have people saying, no, police departments are oppressive and violent and they specifically hurt communities of color. And so they're like a net negative. That's painting with really broad strokes. But I think that's where I see a lot of the debate really on the pros and cons of police. And it's a big issue right now. I mean, less than it was two years ago, but because of George Floyd, which that, if anyone was doesn't know, is a man who died after being in police custody. And he was one of the officers, Derek Chauvin, kneeled on his neck for an extended period of time and he suffocated and died. And there was a video of that that got circulated online and I mean, really everywhere. And then that was a spark for huge protesting against the police. And that's what came... That's where the Black Lives Matter movement came from. This is not the first big police protest. I mean, there were big ones in 2018. And then before that, in I think 2013, there's been sort of these rolling police protests for a long time. I mean, I think you could probably track it even just back to like the 60s or maybe even before that. But the most recent one had to do with George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and then also Breonna Taylor these, you know, kind of more and more, you could keep naming them. um, But more and more of these police shootings and um, uses of excessive force, these stories kept coming out. And I say kept coming out, I think that they've been around for a long time, but there's been a big spotlight on them recently. And so that's brought up this debate of, is there a systematic issue with police departments, particularly with, you know, the impacts on communities of color or is it just a couple of bad apples? And maybe that's too simplistic a way to frame it. But I think that if you're someone who is really defensive of police, I think that sometimes it can be this reaction of no, like not all police, kind of like with the Me Too movement, like not all men. It's no, there's a few bad apples in there and we need to deal with them. And we can do that through sort of more limited methods like taking away union benefits and then uh, maybe kicking them off the police force. But then there's this other side that views it as a very big systematic issue. You know, kind of like we talked about with critical race theory. Is this like an individual bias or is this a systematic problem? And if you think it's a systematic problem, your response to it is going to be a lot more extreme in terms of what you're looking to change related to the police. Yeah, I think both of you 
gave really thoughtful responses. And I do think that that painting with those broad strokes, like you mentioned, Aaron, that is kind of exactly where we're at right now is it's one of the big reasons we wanted to talk about this topic is we're no longer in a position of like, hey, do you think that this job career position should do this thing or this thing? We're in a like, do you think black people have feelings and have just as many rights because of where this is all gone over the years. And so we're here to try and like work through this and model a thoughtful, introspective conversation because it's very hard to have those conversations these days because there's so much emotion and maybe you might think rightfully so, but we're attributing a lot of like, oh, okay, if you have this viewpoint, we have no nothing more to say to each other. You and I fundamentally disagree about too much to discuss anything. And so I think just lifting the curtain on this a little bit and talking about it is helpful, but we're in no way trying to oversimplify a complex issue. Which it is very complex. I mean, you, you can pick any statistician, cr- uh, criminologist, you know, social uh, commentator and find things to support, you know, and buttress or, or counteradict how you feel about this topic. It's, it's, it's widely discussed and debated and, I don't think we'll answer anything today, but it is it is interesting to talk about because because this is one of those topics that does have so much data about it. It's almost interesting for us to be able to like tear that data apart and see what's relevant, what's not relevant, and then given that, how how can we improve things going forward? It's true. I was overwhelmed by the amount of data, actually. It was very hard to sift through. And Zach's right. It yeah. <laughs> you can find data that's supports all sorts of things. And I actually think this data was pretty good, saying that if you decrease the number of police officers in a community, crime rises. And, uh, you know, I, it seemed to me from what I looked at that that was pretty consistent across the board. But then it's like, okay, well, if you have the same number of police officers, but also add other kinds of social services, does that also impact crime, right? And there's so many control factors that are really difficult to do these studies with, kind of like we mentioned, because policing does actually differ place to place to place. And so it makes it really hard to figure out because what works for one community might not work for another community. One thing that I do want to mention, though, that I think is true, no matter what statistics you're looking at, is that there are more impacts on people of color when they interact with the police than on white people. And I did want to cite at least one study related to this. This is from 2019, which said that black American men are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white men. And black women are 1.4 times more likely than white women. And there was a 2018 Bureau of Justice Statistics report, and that showed that police officers were twice as likely to use force against people of color than against white people. You know, when there is a bunch of stop and frisk issues in New York, and 90% of those stops didn't end up returning any criminality. And um, many, most of those stops were against people of color, specifically African-American men. So, you know, we, I think that we do know, even if we don't know exactly how messing with how the police system is set up impacts necessarily crime statistics, I think there's pretty good data that there is a disproportionate impact on communities of color. And we can discuss why that is, but it does seem to be, that also seems to be a trend. So I, I would agree with with that statement, but I think that 
a lot of times the implication is as well, because uh, you said about how much money more times likely African-Americans are likely to be killed than, than white people. It's, and it's easy to use population as, as a na national population as a benchmark rather than offending rates. So there's this statistic from the New York Times that um, says black males are 21 times more likely to be killed by police than are young white males. But that overlooks the fact that black men commit homicides at nearly 10 times the rate of white and Hispanic males combined. The higher homicide commission rate means that police officers are going to be sent to fight crime disproportionately in black neighborhoods where they'll be more likely to encounter armed shooting suspects. I think if you're if you're looking at it, I think it's worth noting, you know, not just people of color are are impacted more, but why why is that? Is it because the police are targeting them on a on a color basis because of their, their skin color, or is it because they're committing more crimes? And I think that that is something that is, I don't often hear talked about in the national conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think about this, though, when we were talking about like our war on drugs episode, there are way more African American men in prison than is proportionate to their population in the United States. And the way that we've enforced drug policy has disproportionately impacted minority populations. And that is one where we talked pretty extensively about how you know, we found that it's not that these populations use drugs more often than white people, but they're being arrested more often than white people and put in jail more often than white people. So I hear I hear that. But also that to me is I, I am concerned about how we're focusing which neighborhoods we're focusing on and which kinds of people we're focusing on when we're talking about that. Mm -hmm. I think that there's room for improvement. I think we in the past have had only a couple levers to pull on, but as, as was mentioned earlier, we now have more levers to pull on such as mental health or, you know, some type of, of nonprofit organizations that can come out and assist with police stops. If there's, you know, a, maybe a, a mental health or a, a homeless concern or something like that. But I read a book in preparation for this episode. And, and I think that, that really the offense rate is, worth noting. And then there was also studies done too, that talk about how actually a lot of the, the reason that blacks are maybe overrepresented in the criminal justice system based off of their percent of the population is not to do with police bias, but rather based off of prior offending rates, um, you know, not showing up for parole hearings or what is it when you when you break your parole, right? You you have certain rules when you're on parole, and you you break those rules because you get high, or you don't report in, or you don't go to the courthouse. So it found, um, I think it was a DOJ study, yeah, uh, a Justice Department study of felony cases of the country's 75 largest urban areas discovered that blacks actually had a lower chance of prosecution following a felony than whites did, and that they were less likely to be found guilty at trial. So it's it's some more, I think, complicated and and compounding information than just based off of the population statistics. Yeah, here it is. African-American adults are 5.9 times as likely to be incarcerated than white people. That's not it. That's not what I'm looking for. Cass, do you have any thoughts while I mess with this? Well, I'm actually just thinking about the study they did about the resumes. This is not directly related to policing, but like if you turn in a resume and it says James and it has all the same criteria as like, Julio, like who's more likely to get the job. And if you do like a black woman's name versus a white woman's name, like 
the percentage of times mm-hmm. that the white woman gets gets the job, quote unquote, over the black woman is just astoundingly high. I just I I un, I, I I like data. I like statistics. I think it's valuable and mm-hmm. and well worth being aware that you can find a statistic to back up almost anything that you ever mm-hmm. want to say looking at you flat earthers. But I do think that I think that we have to be careful that we don't allow arguments to remain on the table just because there's, I, I think that there are some things that we could let go always in favor of like a greater good. And I just, I don't, it's really hard with hearing both of your points about like which data do we pay the most attention to, Right. What are we willing to let go and what are we not, like, what will we not stand for? And I think that sometimes the conversation is hard for me to be in because there are things that I feel like I'm just not willing to take that risk. I'm not willing to run the risk that this person gets profiled incorrectly and is incorrectly incarcerated or unfairly incarcerated for the, for an unfair amount of time or is killed I mean, Breonna Taylor literally was like killed in her sleep. There are things that are outliers and there are things that are very much on the curve. And I think sometimes we point at each other about outliers when it's not an outlier. It's a very common occurrence. And so I'm just trying to remain calm and not get frustrated about things that I don't think we should be arguing about anymore because they're not, they shouldn't hold as much water as more important things. I just, I, I agree with, with your, you know, you saying you're not willing to risk it, which I totally understand because I don't want to live in a country that has, you know, a systemic racial bias against people of color. Like that's, that's not what we, we signed up for. That's not on our mission statement as a nation. I think it matters in a significant amount of how we detect the problem. Let's take, for example, that, that there is systemic, you know, nationwide bias in, in policing. That's you know intentional or at least non systemic, just not built, built in. in. Sure, if the reason for that was malice, means that we have to treat the solution and the remedy in a much different way than you know an oversight in in policy or a change in in how we deploy police officers. You know, geographically, like one is a mistake and one is is I think malicious, and where I come at it from is if you point to an instance of arrest gone wrong, police brutality, excessive use of force, something like that, and then you impugn that the entire national system of policing is racist against minorities, I think that that's, that's too much of a, of a uh, too heavy handed of a stroke to implement effective change. And I think it explains a lot of the reaction that we see now where you have people divided into these camps and can't talk about solutions. So that, that's why I think, you know, I, I agree with you that we don't want to, to have a system that works like that, but we do have to sift through all the, the noise to get to the signal to come up with an effective solution. Otherwise, we're just yelling, you know, past each other. I know Aaron has something to say. I just want to say that it feels like no matter how much data and how many people are screaming, crying and marching in the streets, it's never the right data never enough data. It's never compelling or convincing enough to get real change and real admittance of wrong or failure or brokenness. And that's where it gets frustrating because it feels like we're continuously just like building this case 
oh, you don't have enough in your case yet to like affect real change. Oh, we don't believe you enough yet. That seems like an outlier. That seems like a one-off. Well, he, he just had this and she just had that like, oh, and he made it look like he had a whatever on him. So like, I feel like it's just always, it's, it's just never enough. And so that that's frustrating because I understand wanting to like make sure A equals B before doing mm-hmm. something, but it feels like it's never enough. Go ahead, Erin. Yeah, I really appreciate that perspective, Cassie. I think that it's it's hard with police because they are in a very unique position in the United States where they're literally authorized to use force, including killing people, in a legal way. You are allowed to do that as a police officer. And that's a really... I, to me, that's a really scary thing to think about. But it's also part of, I think, keeping communities safe. But because you have that responsibility, you have to be held to a very, very, very high standard. I have frustration. And I think I'm feeling this from you, Cassie, too, that it doesn't feel like that standard is as high as it should be. And that is impacting particular groups, you know, specifically minority groups. And I agree, you know, like you can talk about data and where it conflicts. Like I did just find the statistic I was looking for. But I think that even if there's conflicting data on some of this stuff, we do know that there are more impacts on communities of color. So whatever that reason is, you know, I, I don't really like distinguishing between like mistake and malice because at the end of the day, the result is still the same, you know, those communities being impacted more. And so whether it's this, you know, bad oversight or it's actual malice, it needs to be seriously addressed. So, and maybe that's not exactly what you were saying, Zach, but I, you know, I don't see that distinction really being important at all. What matters is what's happening on the ground. And I think we need to address what's going on. It's hard to address it when only one person thinks there's a problem. Right. And I hear the, you know, while we're taking like these extreme situations that happened like out of context, but I mean, what number of police shooting are we on now of uh, specifically like black men and, you know, the also black women with Breonna Taylor, but like, like we mentioned at the front, like these protests have been happening on a rolling basis, like every two to five years for a long time. You know, even if you just take the killings that sparked those protests, you're looking at a lot. And, you know, even one of those is too much. And so I do think that even looking at that is enough for us to have a serious question of, you know, are there problems with policing and how do we address them? This may be an episode where we where we maybe disagree the most, honestly, because I agree. I mean, I think that that putting the power of literally to take a life in the hands of the state is an immense burden. And only the best people should have that burden placed upon them because it's it's a honestly it's a job. You get no thanks, you get no sympathy, right? You're out there to ruin everybody's day. And so that can obviously take a toll on you. So I totally agree that the standard should be extremely high. But I think the reason one of the reasons why it, it does matter if it's malice or if it's if it's you know, a mistake is like I said, working out a solution. If it's if it's malice, then okay, maybe defund the police is the right call. Maybe, you know, too much police um, presence is actually, you know, having an unintended consequence and we're losing too many people due to excessive use of force. 
If, however, it's not, and this is where I think, is I think that we need to fund the police more. And that being to allow for more training. I think that, you know, 15 to 20% of your time as an employed officer should be for, for training. And I think if you defund the police, you're going to end up with more reactionary type policing, right? Just responding to calls rather than than trying to prevent homicides and robberies and things like that. And, you know, there are a lot of things that police don't train for right now. Yeah, they, they go through the rule book of, you know, here's what you can arrest people for and here's how to do it. And here's your physical fitness test. And then here's your, you know, your shooting training. But a lot of those things aren't maintained and they're not trained on things, at least on a common level of things like breaching and de-escalation and, you know, continued use and innovations of non-lethal tactics and working together as a team and, you know, what to do with, with civilian help. So I think that there are a lot of things that, you know, for the Breonna Taylor incident, that if those police officers had better, you know, more consistent training, better knowledge of, of their tactics and, you know, better planning and preparation ahead of time, that those types of situations wouldn't, wouldn't happen as much. And I think that's why it does matter whether this is intentional or mistakes at an individual level. Okay, so I want to clarify that when I'm talking about I think we need to address this issue, I'm not saying we need to address this issue by getting rid of all police. You know, I don't no. like want to make that really clear. That's not at all what I'm saying. I actually agree. I don't think that just defunding police departments is the right way to go. I think it's clear from the data, we're going to keep harping on the data, Cassie, you can pull us back from it, but it's our comfort spot. But, uh, you know, I think it shows that when you have fewer police officers, crime increases. So I really don't think that just getting rid of police departments is the answer. I also don't know that that is a dominant view. I think it's a loud voice, but I don't know that people like a huge swaths of people are trying to just get rid of all police. Cassie, do you want to say something? I just want to add on to what you said, Erin, that yes, I do think it is a far left idea that as always, it's a far, 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 far left idea to scrap everything and start over. And that's, you're entitled to your opinion, but I don't think that that is the widespread opinion of everyone on the left. And I do think that sometimes we are bad at caricaturing each other and making it sound like that is a common thread that we all hold dear, but we don't. We have law enforcement officers living on our street. I feel safer living here knowing that they live here, but I think it's important that we address our privilege. We are three white people sitting here. We are not really in danger. We're just not. We are like the group that is most going to benefit from like an altercation with a police officer. We're going to get the benefit of the doubt. We're not at risk of being incarcerated or killed or hurt at the same statistic at the same rate that other people are. And so it's important to address that. And I absolutely think it's important to talk about what do our communities look like? What does the crime rate look like with decreased funds to the police? But I do also want to talk about with you guys, what do we think would work effectively to keep communities safe if there was less police presence? And then after that, we'll talk about what change would you like to see in the law enforcement system? Maybe talking about police academies, maybe talking about unions, quotas, training. So let's go there. 
Yeah, I have so many thoughts about that. I do want to address the defund the police thing real quick, a little, just a little bit more, because if you look on almost any of the websites and the organizations that support uh, the, say, defund the police movement, they make it really clear up front that they're not talking about getting rid of police departments, but reallocating resources so that you have more like mental health professionals and people who are trained in de-escalation and other resources for the police. And so one of their main arguments basically is that police are asked to do too much and we need to spread out who's responsible for these various things. And so I do want to make that clear because I don't think that for one, I think defund the police as the like name for this movement, just a really bad choice of it could be like wording. <laughs> it's really bad, you know? I'm realizing I literally thought it meant like take money at like take all their money away, but now I'm realizing maybe it just means like lower the funding. Yeah, and that's part of it is cutting police budgets and giving it to other resources that can address sort of some of these community problems. And it is, I mean, some of it definitely is cutting police budgets, but it's not just like abolishing police. Again, there's kind of the fringes on on the the outlines who would want to do that, but the main movement is not saying like, let's just get rid of all police. So I just want to make that clear. Cause I don't think that when you say defund the police, that is not what like initially comes across. I get what you're saying in, in defending them that as a slogan, but it literally is in the name. I know it's not your guys' fault. You didn't name it. It's literally in the name. And, and just as, as an anecdote, when we were in Seattle a couple of weeks ago, literally it's signs that show abolish SPD. Like, yeah. so I, I do, I, I do hear you and I, I, I will, you know, acknowledge that it is, you know, somewhat of, of a fringe, but also I think that there's plenty of people that would love to see police departments abolished. They think that it's, it's literally a, like they're oppressive institutions yeah. and that they do no good and that they are only there to enforce, you know, racist capitalist policies, like hearkening back to the CRT thing. So I think it's fringe, but I don't know quite how big the fringe is. I, I mean, I'd be curious to talk to somebody who feels that way because, and I know we were just in Seattle, Aaron, you're in San Francisco, you're probably seeing some of this more than we are, but, you know, you Google Oxford Dictionary, the word defund, prevent from continuing to use funds. I don't really understand what a world without police looks like. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? Like, we, we have actual <laughs> crime and need for protection. Thank you. Thank you. I know it's not <laughs> October yet, but thanks for not leaving yeah, that one yeah. hanging out. <laughs> I said some of this at the beginning, but I wish I had said more. Like, I really respect police officers, the good ones, right? And that's maybe where it's hard is, like, I don't want to have to put that caveat on it. I would like law enforcement officers to be the best among us, right? I would like them to earn and then wear that title proudly and then really be held to a specific and high standard to and maintain that standard. And maybe the concern is, I haven't had to take a driving test since I was 16. I'm just out here driving around. Like, that's just a silly example of like, we can just do dangerous things in the world all the time because we're quote unquote allowed. And I'm not a person who carries a gun. And so I think that the people who have a higher expectation in our society should be held to a, a higher level. And that's where I get frustrated because I want them. I want them to be revered. I want them to be trusted and respected. And I want them to keep us safe and pay, hold up their end mm -hmm. of the deal. Sometimes it does not feel like they're holding up their end of the deal. I don't want to just give them 
their crowns. I agree. And I think maybe this is a good time for us to talk about training police and what changes maybe we'd like to see there. Because I actually think that this is one of the biggest areas where we could have really good police reform. I actually think this is the area. And so I don't know how convinced I am by let's reallocate all of the resources for police in these various ways. Part of it is that We don't have any data right now, really, on how well this works. Mm. Of the cities and and municipalities that did cut some police budgets and invested in other kinds of community support, that happened like a year and a half or two years ago. And criminologists and crime statisticians are like, it's just not enough data to know if any of this works, especially because during covid crime has shot up and it is now starting to fall. So all the data is like messed up right now. So that was one of the questions that we actually looked into was, okay, these places that have cut police budgets, what happened with them? I mean, I was not able to find anything definitive and I don't think we have anything yet. Uh, did you find anything, Zach? I did see, I mean, there was a post on that got circulated on Facebook that was like, these 12 Democrat-led cities decreased their police budgets and now their crime has like expanded that's been like totally debunked. There were of the, the cities in the list, a few of them had actually increased their budgets, not decreased them. And um, it was also some of the largest cities, which are more likely to have Democrat mayors. And so it, there were just like a whole bunch of problems with the way that was presented. But it was one of those things that got like shared yeah. a lot on on Facebook. So, so I, I have a couple things and it's I don't have... The, um correlation between funding of police departments and, you know, increase in crime rate. But the author of the book that I, I read is called, was well, Heather McDonald, and the book is called The War on Cops. And the book is a little bit older. I think it's written in 2016 or 2017. Um, so it's obviously before COVID and George Floyd and all of that. But it is written after the Michael Brown and Eric Gardner incidents, which happened in Ferguson and, and New York City. There's the phenomenon that she documents in the book called the Ferguson effect, which is in reaction to or or after Black Lives Matter really started to gain prominence in 2015, uh, late 2014, 2015, there's there's some trends that you can see if you look at the the FBI crime map. For one, homicides in Cleveland went up 90% from 2014. Shootings in St. Louis were up 40%, robberies 43, murders in Nashville up 83%, Milwaukee, 72% in homicides, Chicago, 24% increase in shootings. Sorry, I don't understand the statistic. They went up in, they went up why? Or in a period of, what are you saying? So, okay, good question. I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked. But basically in, in response to some of the protests and, and things that happened in, with Black Lives Matter in its, in its earliest days, departments really started scaling back their proactive policing. And this is kind of what tagging on and putting numbers to what Aaron mentioned earlier about when you have less police, crime goes up. And so, for example, New York City, pedestrian stops dropped 80% citywide, meaning that's like officers getting out of their cars, seeing somebody suspicious and being like, hey, you know, what are you up to? Those types of of enforcements dropped 80% in the wake of, of those, those protests. So I can't, I can't intentionally to try and not have issues crop up anymore. Are you saying that was a correction that was put forth by the police Police departments recognize that there were, that the 
the support maybe had turned against them nationally and as a reaction to if if i try to do my job in the way that it's been done for the past 15 years let's say right of getting out of the car and stopping somebody who's acting suspicious and if that situation goes south it will get captured on video and it will be circulated on the internet and i will get fired from my job and even if the the stop was legitimate under previous law they weren't willing to make that risk anymore so they voluntarily or on their own stopped those proactive type stops. Okay, so the one thing I just want to mention about these stats is that I think that it's not taking, they're limited, and you kind of mentioned this already, they're limited because it's not taking into account if a city is actually following the defund the police movement, which is allocating, reallocating that's what I'm trying to resources. Figure out. Yeah. So I don't think, and I think that's a problem with the data we have now, is that we don't actually have data that can tell us definitively, you know, what doing a different system like that would actually mean for crime. I think that's a problem. Does the cause of why police are making less stops or have less money so they have less police out, you know, circulating the streets... Does the cause of why they made that decision contradict the increase in crime that we see since 2015? No, that's not what I'm saying. Because crime rate is trending up since since 2015. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we don't have data for it. Because all that is measuring is what happens if you decrease policing. It doesn't also measure like what happens if you decrease policing and increase mental health services and increase like community support and increase, you know, all of those other ways that people are talking about reforming police departments. And so that's why I think I, I just think they're limited in terms of when you're talking about what might actually help for policing. That's all I'm saying. I don't think those crimes can speak to like a full review of the different methods you can use to reform policing because it's only measuring one thing yeah because i don't think i don't think really much has been tried i mean as far as i know right that's what i'm saying though is that like if you're answering yeah. the question of like has the defund the police thing worked i don't i don't think you can answer it because we don't have great examples of it so far there is one and it gets cited all over the place if you start to look for like you know examples of defunding the police well and it's in camden new jersey and you may have run across it. The Camden, it's a town, they disbanded their police force and they fully did. They disbanded it. But then the thing that like sometimes these citations don't follow up with is that they actually like reformed it, but they did it in a, a sort of a different way. And they hired the police officers individually, privately, and they changed training and they increased some of these other community services. And they've had a lot of success being able to do that. But it wasn't like they just got rid of all police. They just kind of changed the way that they were doing it. But it's a fairly small town. And so it is a great example of like a, a method you could use that is not just traditional, quote, policing. But it is like kind of the example that's cited that's kind all of, interesting. Place of a way to do things differently. It's interesting in like a business sense. It's almost mm -hmm. like under new management. Like yeah. no one from before is guaranteed their job. But we are going to keep the best performers. So you're all going to reapply <laughs> and we're going to do a, we're going to look at performance reviews or have interviews or whatever. As we're talking about the question five, what change would you like to see in police training or academies that would help eradicate police brutality and, and basically make the streets safer and the people safer? 
I think that could be a good way. It's like people who are already in quote unquote, like don't get a pass. Like there needs to, and I feel the same way about lots of things. I've mentioned driving earlier. I think with guns, I think it's a good idea to continually have to take gun safety courses, not just like once and then you're done. And then I really do like the idea of employing specialists to do their thing. When I was 15 and a half, I became a lifeguard And I don't even really remember knowing this, but as a lifeguard at our pool, you had to also be a swim instructor. And I think this is true in a lot of places, but maybe not everywhere. And I don't know, just think about those two jobs for a minute. One of them is like sitting on a stand watching sort of vigilantly to make sure people aren't drowning or bleeding and you have to be able to perform CPR and deal with first aid injuries. We like learned how to deliver a baby in an emergency. But then the other part of our job was teaching swim lessons, which is a totally different set of skills. It's teaching, it's holding babies and never letting your eye off of them for a minute. We were 16. Like It's singing songs and maintaining patience. And I'm saying all this to say, yeah, I think police officers might be doing too much. I think they might be overextended. Maybe they're underfunded. Maybe they're undertrained. Maybe it's all three. And so to have some specialists come in and do their thing, the mental health professionals, more support for the homeless this allows the police officers to do better, which is unfortunately like putting themselves in danger and and putting themselves in really dangerous situations to keep the rest of us safe. And if they're not going into situations where there's so many unanswered questions that they are fearing for their safety, like if we're putting the very best of expectations on a police officer, like we're asking them to go into the unknown every single day. They do not know if they're coming home every single day. And I don't, I don't think we take that lightly at all, but if we allowed them to be better trained and supported in these other areas, so they didn't have to be the best at all these different categories and didn't have to go in with a, a heart full of fear and be so tired and overextended. I just, everybody wins. I don't know why we would wait for more data, more statistics. Yeah, so I agree with you as far as having more professionals around, but I actually also think that that kind of training is something that police officers should really be receiving too. Like I think police officers should get mental health training and training in dealing with homelessness like way more than they get now. And I also think there's a real problem with the militarization of the police and sort of a departure from being in the community being like the neighborhood person as and and getting in this war mindset again we talked about this in war on drugs but positioning it as the police against the community is really Mm -hmm. i mean it's a really terrible way to position it and i think that that leads to increases in violence because you're always in like this warlike mindset and that's true even just of the military equipment that provide to some police departments. You know, it's crazy. But when I was in Davis going to uh, law school, there was there were big protests in Davis during the Occupy Wall Street movement. And after that, there was like this ramp up in the police. It's Davis. It's this small town that does not have like crazy crime. And they apparently the police department requested a tank and it got like the request got denied and there were protests about it but it's just like what are you doing you're this is not anything that you need and something i wanted to mention related to kind of this training 
I think that this does happen largely, this sort of like us versus them and kind of being told that you need to be afraid that you're going to like die all the time. And so you're putting this like heightened sense of anxiety. I think that does happen during training and it changes the way that police can interact with communities. And that also, I think, can open the door to allowing for the racial disparities and discrimination to to come in. But I saw this one study and I wanted to mention it because I thought it was really interesting. It was a study of NYPD recruits and they looked into the most common motivations for people to become police officers. And the most common motivation they found was the opportunity to help in the community. The people who are joining police forces are joining it because they want to help the community. You know, these are the ones, and like you said, Cassie, they're the people who are, you know, largely on the whole, really trying to make a better society. And they, it's a public service, you know, and it is a difficult job. It's often a thankless job. And the people getting into it are largely idealistic. This is related. In 2015, there's a group of researchers, they did a police like psychology study. And they use this integrity, they called it an integrity scale to measure honesty, trustworthiness, and incorruptibility. And they found that the police rec- recruits hmm. scored higher on average than the college students who had participated in the earlier studies. So I just think it's really interesting to think about the type of person that gets into policing and then how we train them during the policing. And if maybe we could harness that public service spirit a little bit better than we've been doing and stop putting it into this warlike mentality and start thinking of it as more a partner with the community. And then you can have all of those other training as part of that as well so that you have a more holistic person who's being a police officer, not just someone who has this like, I must just like stop the crime you know, so that it it is more of a community mindset. I think that would really address a lot of these issues. I think so too. I'm I'm definitely in favor of that. In addition, I would just like to add, I don't think that you can get that while claiming that the police are racist. I'm I'm not saying that you guys are doing that here today, but I think if the national conversation is that policing and and police officers are racist in their enforcement of laws and discriminatory, that's going to dissuade and further harden the people that are in the profession or dissuade people from joining and, and harden people in the profession from seeing themselves as part of the community. Do you have any concerns with some of the systems and some of the policies in place that while they might yield a certain type of results, like broken windows policing, do primarily target and and potentially racially profile communities that are people of color. I'm saying if you got rid of like broken windows mm-hmm. policing and stop and frisk and all those things, you would be upset. You'd be like, all this success we were seeing from some of these systems, that's just two mm-hmm. I could think of on the top of my head. If we got rid of that, then all the success we've seen from those systems would go away. I think the data supports that. Yeah, I think I think since 2015, when you started to have departments that scaled back their proactive policies, you know whether whether formally or on an individual level, because the officer didn't feel like they were supported enough to go into those areas, um, you see a, you see an increase in crime, and that that affects everybody. That doesn't just affect minorities; it affects everybody. 
So yeah, I, I, I think okay. I would agree with and that. And so, so going off of that, what I, what I was asking was if we, if people are, if some people are arguing that we should get rid of those systems because they unfairly profile and discriminate against people of color, twisting that into saying every cop is racist is in fact a twist rather than like truly looking at systems for the best possible way to accomplish the same goal, which is keeping our community Mm -hmm. safe. But if, if you and I disagree about how to do that and I feel like, okay, you're seeing success in these areas, but these groups of people are being unfairly targeted and, and hurt and incarcerated and I'm not willing to make that trade. And you're saying, yes, I am. I think that's where it gets heated. I mean, you're, I think you're saying almost what I said earlier is it, it matters if it's intentional or if it's a mistake. Like that's almost what I was saying earlier. This is getting, I don't, I'm out of my depth here, but I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to say that if the data of like broken windows policing concurrently showed at the same time, it unfairly disparages and discriminates against people Mm -hmm. of color and like more people end up like being hurt or arrested or killed but also it reduces crime in these ways. Like I'm saying, okay, then that's, then that's not good enough and we should scrap it or deal with it or fix it. And you're saying, but if we get rid of it, all this crime goes away. So I don't think we should get rid of it. And I'm just saying, I think your perspective is, is twisted to sound like I'm okay with this bad thing happening over here with these people getting discriminated and, and hurt and killed as long as this still happens. Okay, we got there. I, I, it took a minute, but we got there. So I, I get what you're saying. I don't have all the data you have. I'm no, sorry. it's fine. I, I get why you're, you're asking that question. So what I would say is that I don't think that it's an intentional system. Ever? No, I don't think the system is intentionally targeting minorities. No. Ever? I'm, this, I don't think the system is targeting. I think that you definitely have individuals you know, or maybe even departments that that are are executing in bad faith. But I don't think that the system is designed to repress and, and target minorities, no. Okay, but some people look at that same data and draw a different conclusion. So that's, it's not to oversimplify what you're saying. I'm not saying that you're wrong or you're bad, but I am saying, yes, it's difficult to come to a consensus as a country in our feeling about law enforcement officers, when you and I can look at the same data and come to a very different conclusion. I, sure. I, yeah. But I think that something that's important to notice is that rates of offending between different races is not the same. You know, it's, it's not that blacks constitute 13% of the population. So they commit 13% of the crime. Like that's a statistic that is that I, you know, going back to what I said in the beginning is not often talked about and discussed. And sure, there could be other things involved in us helping to make society such that that some of that is is alleviated. But in LA, uh, just for one number, black people commit forty two percent of all robberies, despite being you know ten percent of the population. Like that is that's a disparate impact. And so when black people are arrested at a higher rate or stopped and and questioned at a higher rate in LA County, when they commit nearly half of the robberies in the county, that feels somewhat appropriate. And I, I don't mean that in terms of, oh, good, like target the, the people of color. I mean that in, like, we have the, the witness reports that correlate with the arrests. And in, in mostly all cases, 
the witness saw the same race as the person who was arrested for committing the crime, which means that the police are targeting the people who are committing the crime. And if that's the case, I don't think that we should throw out like broken windows policing when we have such, I think, strong indications that the people that are committing the crimes are the ones we know that we know, we have that information. So I think, yes, there's a disparate impact, but I don't think that the disparate impact is because of the system. I tend to think it's because of the individuals committing the, the crimes. I think we have to accept and put some level of individual responsibility on, on people committing crimes. If you don't want to go to jail, you know, maybe you made a mistake and then you get out and you're on parole. Like nobody makes you do more drugs on parole or, you know, miss your parole appointment or whatever it is. So I think, I think, yes, we can, we can try to do a lot on a policy level. And I definitely support adding experts, you know, for mental health and for homelessness and de-escalation. And I think that there should be higher standards for police. I think fit annual fitness tests is a great one. I think 20% training, you know, as, as a baseline of your job is important, but also I think we have to acknowledge that, that individual responsibility plays a role here. And I'll just end my little monologue with this is a quote from Barack Obama saying, we know the statistics, children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. And if you look at the, the illegitimacy rate of, you know, black children born into families, it's extremely high. So I'm, I think that we do a lot as a society in, in terms of support. I think there has to be more focus on a cultural level to, to make some changes there as well, including in the police level. Okay. Can, yeah. Can I please jump in? So I don't think that, I, I think you're getting to the root of kind of what you're saying is, and where I would really disagree with you when you say, I think we as a society are providing a lot of support. So I like, I do not think that is true, particularly for these populations that um, are struggling because we know that minority populations have more rates of poverty. Like, I don't think that we're doing a good job addressing that. And when there's more poverty, there is more crime. And so it's almost like addressing the, when you talk about policing these communities, it's addressing the, the symptom, but not the cause. And I think we need to look at the cause, not just the symptom. And so if you're looking at like people with criminal records, for instance, they do face obstacles to re-enter society. And that's partly because of some of the policies that we've chosen. For instance, in some states, you're not allowed to vote after you've committed certain crimes. You, it's hard to uh, get employment and housing, depending on the state, depending on what you can actually look at in terms of criminal records. It's hard to access the welfare or federal student aid. You know, there's all these things that you might not be able to have access to if you have committed a crime. And so that's how you, I think this feeds into the repeat offender issue, because that is also a problem when we're talking about these statistics and how people, you know, people who commit crimes are more likely to commit more crimes. And one of the reasons is because we don't have good systems for actually like reintroducing them into society and helping them be productive members of society. And then when we're talking about influences of these prior crimes or sentencing, you know, sentencing and which crimes you're being prosecuted for are 
set by the prosecutor. That's who decides. It's not the police. It's the prosecutors who decide what crime you're actually going to be charged with. And prosecutors are more likely to charge people of color with crimes that carry heavier sentences than white people. So federal prosecutors are twice as likely to charge African-Americans with offenses that carry mandatory minimum sentencing than similarly situated white people. And so once you actually enter the criminal justice system, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And that affects how you interact with society after you've left the criminal justice system. If you're someone who gets five years of parole versus two years of parole, you could be in the same situation as someone else, but you have a much longer period of parole, which means that you're much more likely to potentially go back to jail than someone else if you commit a crime after, say, the third year when the person next to you got a two-year parole. You know, state, state prosecutors are also more likely to charge black people rather than similar white defendants under habitual offender laws. So for, you know, there, there's laws that say if you've offended more than once, you can have a higher, like, sentence and, and a worse, uh, like, crime penalties, basically. And so if we're having these disproportionate impacts on black people than white people, that does affect how you end up doing policing, too, in the broader society and, like, what communities are going to be more targeted. And so I don't, you know, like, I, I hear what you're saying with the statistics and stuff, but, like, that's not that convincing to me. You know, if that is the case, then we need to do a better job of making sure that these people aren't getting into the system in the first place. And I think that has to do with social programs and education and providing family care and all of those things that I feel like the conservative side often is really pushing like, well, we need to have strong families. We need to have strong families, which I really agree with. I think strong families are very important and they're important to preventing crime and all sorts of other things. Like we, we know that strong families are a good thing. But if you're someone who, you know, is born in poverty or just even like not in our demographic, not in the way that we grew up, you need more social support in order to have an equal opportunity. And this goes to opportunity, but it also goes to your likelihood to be in a situation where crime is part of your life. And so I like I really think that we need to look at that. And I think another piece of this, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to like connect this, but I think another piece of this is how communities actually interact with and trust the police. Because that's another big issue here. When you have a community that keeps, that has the police kind of after them all the time and is used to excessive force and has seen police shootings of members of their community, that, that breaks down trust between that community and between the police. And then that in itself is a huge problem to actually bridging these gaps and making those interactions and those relationships more positive instead of more negative. So I think there's a lot going on here. And yeah, that was kind of a rant, but it's, it feels a little frustrating to me to be like, well, they commit more crimes, so we're just going to focus on that. I think that it's a lot more complicated than that. And that's not saying that like, that, that doesn't mean that all police are bad, but I think that means that we need to look at some of the deeper issues here and what the systems we are we do have are doing. I'm not convinced, I'll say, that spending more money in, in social welfare programs is going to suddenly change 
like the family structure, you know, or, or suddenly curtail crime. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that that's the answer. And we spent, I think I saw something like $22 trillion on the war on crime. And I'm not convinced that more government funding and more programs is the answer. I think that there can definitely be room for reformation in terms of sentencing or leniency with, with, you know, if you're on parole and you have to show up to, to a court date or something like that, that you actually, you know, do you have transportation, right? Maybe the state can provide some transportation to help you make your, your parole meetings or your court dates if you're summons to court for, for a crime. I think that there are things where I, I'm not in favor of us punishing being poor. That's absolutely not something I, I think is good, but, but I, I'm not convinced. And I, I don't think that there's information to prove that spending more money on social welfare programs decreases crime. I, we've been doing it for 60 years. It hasn't worked. I would really like to just thank you both for talking about this so passionately. I know it's, it's hard to be an hour and a half in or whatever we are and still be this passionate, but we take it very seriously. I do think that there's a larger conversation to be had when we talk about social programs, including but not limited to welfare. And I think you're bringing up a really interesting point, Zach, like at the very end of this. Um, and Aaron and Aaron sort of started it too. So I do think we should come back to that. But I think for now, just to sort of wrap up specifically the discussion about law enforcement, what changes in our in our more limited scope would you want to see, if it's anything we haven't mentioned, in police academies and in training to help eradicate police brutality? especially against people of color. Yeah, I did have one in particular that I definitely wanted to mention, and it would be requiring police officers to have college degrees. Um, And I found some interesting information related to this. So there was a study of disciplinary cases in Florida, and it found out that officers with only high school educations were the subjects of 75% of all disciplinary action. There was a separate study that found that officers with an undergraduate degree performed on par with officers who had 10 years of additional experience. And I mean, I just think I I look at that and that's really convincing to me of something that is very practical and could potentially have a huge impact on policing. You would, of course, have to make be able to attract people who have college degrees to policing. And I think Mm -hmm. you kind of touched on that, Zach, of it not necessarily being a a profession that everyone wants to go into. But I think it just that's that seems like something that could be a a fairly easy step that could make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. I like that idea for sure. I definitely would support uh, a higher level of education being required. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention was just in terms of changing training in police academies. This is from also from uh, Bureau of Justice report said about 70% of police officers say they've never fired a gun when they've been on the job. 70%. So really high, but on average, 71 hours of their training are devoted to firearm skills, 60 hours to self-defense and only 43 are spent on community policing measures like culture, diversity training, human relations, mediation, and conflict management. So for me, I would totally flip those, you know, spend 70 hours on the community policing measures and like 40 or less hours on firing a gun. You know, I think that it really makes sense. And even that is just going to 
communicate the emphasis to the police officer of, you know, the things that are going to be more important in the job. So that's a big one I would change. And I would include bias training as well as one of the things in police training. I would, I would actually probably like to extend police academy training, make it, make it a longer program. I would definitely say, yeah, we probably don't need as much emphasis on, on firearms training, but definitely some kind of, of martial arts would be great. Like, um, I've, I've heard a lot of people in the space, um, really advocate for Brazilian jiu-jitsu because that is something that uses like the momentum and the weight of your attacker against that person. Right. And so, um, it's really integrates like grappling, um, and, and holds, which are good for submission. So instead of, you know, you seeing a police officer who is, you know, on the knee on, uh, on the knee on the back of a suspect, and they're just like beating them with their fists or with the baton or something like that to try to get them to submit, then they would use Brazilian Jiu Jitsu instead and, and use like momentum and leverage and, and grapples to, to do that. And it, I think it's safer for the officer as well as for the, the victim or suspect. So that's one. Another one that uh, I would like to see as a change is virtual reality, I think is, is something that, that somebody I follow on, on social media is putting together a training for. His name is Tim Kennedy. And he's like, I think he's kind of a badass. I mean, he is, he's a Green Beret MMA fighter. Like he's, he's an incredible person. Um, but he is, is developing a system, I think, that uses virtual reality for police training. So this is great because then it actually puts the officers in scenario training rather than just in a classroom type setting or even, you know, on a range or something like that. It immerses them into a, a world where they can play out different scenarios of, you know, a traffic stop gone bad or, um, you know, serving a search warrant on a house or whatever. And uh, you can really do a lot of customization programming there. One of the things that is was positive was um, a sentencing measure called swift and certain, which I thought was interesting, which that argues that it's not the severity of the punishment, meaning like the length of time that someone is sentenced to, but it's certainty and swiftness which um, with which it is imposed. Most criminals have short time horizons. Um, so telling them that they may face a prison sentence of five years after six or so arrests is not much of a deterrent as telling them that they will go to jail if only for a day or two as soon as they offend. Probationers would randomly be tested for drugs uh, use for drug use six times a month. Every first offense would immediately be met with jail time and then subsequent violations would bring longer sentences. The results showed that half the probationers in the experimental program never tested dirty for meth again. A quarter of the experimental population stopped using meth after one trip to jail. So that's like 75% of the people in this program that were, you know, arrested and, and, and detained for methamphetamine use, which we think of as a highly addictive drug, never repeated um, because they knew if I do this, I will go back to jail. So that's something that, that I would be curious to learn more about because if, if going to jail is, uh, you know, on a first time offense for a nonviolent crime is something more akin to like a speeding ticket. You know, that would be something that could be really interesting in helping to, as we were discussing as a point of contention earlier, reintroducing people back into society, right? If you go to jail for a nonviolent drug offense, and it's only like in that swift and certain program for, you know, a couple of days, you know, after three years, it's, it's wiped from your record, something like that. And then the last on my plate, I know I'm going long-winded is um, no-knock warrants, I think are, are totally not 
should not be allowed. I think, I think that there's not really a situation unless you know you're going up against like a drug kingpin or something like that, that, that we should be serving no knock warrants on, on citizens. Police after all are just citizens too. Like I, I don't, I don't like that distinction that's made of, oh, you know, police and citizen, like they're citizens too. They just do this job that they are entrusted by us to do. So I think, um, I'm for as militarizing the police as little as possible. And I think eliminating no knock warrants is, would be a good step in that direction. Yes, totally agreed on no, no knock warrants. And I think that, you know, so, some of the other things like choke holds, strangle holds, that that's the kind of, I would put that in that category too, of just things we don't need police to do. And you kind of talked about like the jujitsu stuff. Um, getting rid of there's one police department that got rid of chokeholds and strangleholds and they experienced it was a study of police departments they experienced a 22 percent reduction in the rate of police killings you know there's just like some methods that are more dangerous and so i think we could look into you know what those methods are and get rid of them there's actually been supreme court cases on on the use of uh chokeholds and if they're even constitutional so I was just going to add that, yeah, like it, it all feeds in, right? Like if, if you focus, you know, training on de-escalation in, in the academy and, and you have people that are, are trained and versed in how to, you know, communicate to people, especially if they're on drugs or if they're homeless or, you know, uh, mentally challenged in some way, like you end up in, in less of those scenarios where you would need to use a chokehold. So like, it, it's kind of like in, in my job testing, like the later on you find a defect in the process, the more expensive it is to fix it. Like the earlier you earlier you can de-escalate and resolve a situation, like the less dangerous likelihood for violence there is. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say that those are some really good suggestions. Some of them I had not thought of before, like virtual reality. That feels feels obvious. We definitely have the technology and the training. I'm thinking about like the healthcare episode where we talk about how expensive so much of the tools and and machinery that we have in the United States is, but we don't have healthier people. Like we have a lot of tech available to law enforcement. And at least I'm basing that kind of off of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So maybe that's not a real stat, but basically I think it would be a really good idea to do virtual reality. So I'm just putting my my vote behind that as well. If there's anything else you guys want to add, maybe now's a good time to do it before we wrap up. There's a lot bouncing around in my brain. I feel like a little bit of a pinball machine, but I think I can restrain myself for today. That's fine. Yeah, I don't have anything. <laughs> this is a hard one to organize my thoughts for, yeah. so yeah, totally true. fine to, to cut here. Well, I really appreciate you guys talking and coming so prepared with so much data, but also just being vulnerable and sharing your opinions and your feelings about this. I think, as always, we want to come into these conversations feeling ready. Right. And I use ready in air quotes because we don't we don't that's not real life. Right. Like, yes, this is a podcast. Yes, this is something that we did prepare for. But in real life, like you end up with these conversations kind of unexpectedly. And we just want to always try to model and encourage people to be able to try and get to the heart of why somebody believes differently than you or why they might think that thing or how they looked at the same information and drew a different conclusion. And we don't want to be stagnant in our thoughts. We always want to be learning and growing. I think we talked today about how we want the same for our community. We want the same for our law enforcement officers and organizations. Um, so again, I've said it a couple of times, but we just, 
we, we do, I thank police officers. I'm thankful to them. I'm grateful to them. And I want to support them and see them be successful. But I'm also so sympathetic and aware of that we need to be doing better by our brothers and sisters of color. And I want, I want anyone who feels like they listen to this and they have, you know, either positive feedback, hooray, we always love that, but also negative feedback or constructive criticism. If you feel like we got something wrong or we missed something, please feel free to reach out. We do genuinely do this because we'd like to and want to learn and want to create a better world and community. So um, if you have any input, please feel free to send it over. You can always DM us on um, Instagram at reframerspod or um, really you can send us an email. We are grownups. So reframerspod at gmail.com will also come to us. And again, we just want to thank you for joining us on this ride. I would like to volunteer a couple topics if we do a part two um, for police one day. Qualified immunity. I looked on that a little bit, but I think that would be interesting to talk about in terms of, of police and maybe just in a bigger umbrella, like punishment for if police are accused of right. wrongdoing, how do we handle that? Yeah, because we didn't even talk about unions. Right. Police unions and, um, you know, uh, should should police be elected, you know, versus chosen. So I think, I think there's some interesting things we could talk about some more. I know we've focused a lot on the race topic today, yeah. but um, I, I, that would be one I would be curious to, to hear our thoughts on. So I don't know that we actually have to do a part two for that because we did talk about talking about the uh, Supreme Court term and they had a case on qualified immunity. So we can uh, bring that in there. Beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, like Aaron said, one of our upcoming topics that we're going to talk about here on The Reframers is sort of a, a part-year, mid-year review on the Supreme Court decisions that have happened over the summer. And one of those will be qualified immunity, which I know nothing about. So you guys can come and join me and not feel bad. And then we'll definitely have to talk about abortion in addition to a lot of other delicious topics we can sink our teeth into. So join us and thank you for listening. Hey, if you think somebody you know would like this podcast, please share. We love you. Thank you so much. All right, that's it. Take care. Take care of each other and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. Don't you love when you find uh, dog hair in your nachos at the end of the nachos? <laughs>